I've been really pumping up Melchizedek for a while now, so you've probably been sitting here thinking, this better be worth it. This better be the best <laughs> study ever. So we'll see. You probably walk away thinking, that's it? That's all who Melchizedek was? Hopefully not. This is pretty cool. So um, hopefully you'll think so too. So uh, this is what the author of Hebrews has been eager to jump into. Um, we see in, in, in chapter 6, we've been talking about Christ's unchangeable, God's unchangeable promise, His unchangeable character, and the hope and the confidence that that gives us, that we have in Christ a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews has mentioned Melchizedek a few times, but he's never explained it. We noticed earlier on in chapter 5 that when he brings up Melchizedek, he has to stop and tell the readers, I really want to talk about him right now, but you're too dull of hearing. You're not ready to hear it. And so he, he kind of gives it to him a little bit and tells them they need to grow up. And uh, then, they, then we're finally back to it. So this is the point that he's been kind of pointing toward. He's been, he's been getting ready to and anticipating the opportunity for, for his readers to understand who Melchizedek is and why is it significant that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Whenever you see those words, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that is a quotation of Psalm 110, verse 4. And that is one of the two places in Scripture outside of Hebrews where Melchizedek is mentioned. And so this is a character, Melchizedek is a character that is not mentioned hardly at all in Scripture. And so it's fascinating that he is given such prominence. So what we're going to do before we jump into Hebrews is actually look at the other passage of Scripture where Melchizedek is first mentioned. We're going to get to know him a little bit. We're going to learn the story and then we'll connect that to Jesus and see what the significance is. So, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. This is where we first meet this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 17. Abram is returned from defeating some kings, uh, specifically Chedorlaomer. Right. <laughs> Didn't practice that ahead of time. And it says in verse 17, after he returned from defeating that guy and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And that's it. All right? that, is, that is all we know of Melchizedek. That is the only story where we read about this guy named Melchizedek. We don't know where he comes from. We have to remember this is before the Levitical priesthood had been formed. 
This is before the law of Moses had been given. This is before the nation of Israel had been founded. And here is this priest of the Most High God who appears out of nowhere, blesses Abram, receives a tenth from Abram, and is gone. And then the only time, other time we see this Melchizedek is in Psalm 110, verse 4, where, which Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, it's anticipating the coming Messiah, and we read in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, the, Psalm 110 is indi indicating that the future Messiah would serve as a priest according to Melchizedek's priesthood. And that's all we know of Melchizedek. So, what is the significance of the order of Melchizedek? And why is it important for us as Christians, why was it important for the readers of Hebrews to understand this significance? Now, again, this is deep stuff, right? This is this is meat. This isn't milk. This is meat, right? That's why the author had to stop and tell the, the readers that they were too dull of hearing. So if you don't pay attention, then you're dull of hearing, okay? That's not, not really. But you're going to have to think. You have to really think and pay attention uh, and hopefully get the, uh, the significance. Let's consider the context of the reader. When the Jews think of a priesthood, what priestly line do they think of? Levi or Aaron, right? Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, you can call it, the Levitical priesthood. Um, Aaron was a Levite. And so, yes, we think of the Levitical priesthood. That is, especially for Jewish readers, when they hear priest, they hear Levite. And that was the greatest and the best. The idea of having a priest who was not a Levite is inconceivable. And so remember, we are at the point of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to show that Christ is superior. He is greater. He is better than everything, right? He is better than angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Abraham. And he's also been established as our great high priest. But if you're a reader, you're thinking, okay, I know something about high priests. They're, they come from the tribe of Levi. And I know Jesus was not a Levite. So how can Christ be my great high priest if he is not even in the priestly line? Which is the priestly line, right? The law itself declares it to be so. And so there might be a tension in the, in the, in the minds of the readers who are receiving this letter. And so here's the point the author is trying to make. You're forgetting about another priestly line that is far superior to the, to the Levitical priesthood. And you'll notice in Psalm 110, when, when the psalmist points to the future Messiah, he does not say, you'll be a high priest forever after the order of Aaron or after the order of Levi. He'll say, after the order of Melchizedek. So he points to something higher, something better. And he says, this is the priestly order that Christ is coming in. So, Hebrews chapter 7 is where he really digs into this. And in verses 1 through 3, he's going to begin by describing this guy named Melchizedek. And verse 1 recounts the story that we saw in Genesis, 12, in Genesis chapter 14. Right? So, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20 is where we read the story. It says, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And so as we, he starts to describe Melchizedek, we start to see how he resembles or, per, or points to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And, and how does he do this? In verse 2, he highlights something, and he begins by talking about Melchizedek's name. By translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. Now, what are we, what's going on here? Okay, so king of righteousness, the Hebrew word for king is melech. Uh, righteousness is zedek. Okay, so Melchizedek. So he's translating the Hebrew name, saying this Melchizedek is by translation of his name, Melech Zedek, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And then also he is king of Salem. That is king of peace. Now, does anyone know the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Right? And that is connected to this proper noun, Salem, connected to the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. So he's pointing to Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's saying, by translation of his name and his title, he is the king of righteousness, he is the king of peace. All right, so we're starting to see the connections here, right? It's not hard to, 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 to consider what exactly it's pointing to. In verse 3 is really interesting. He says, he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What in the world is going on here? So there's some difference of opinion. Some, some people will say that this is saying that Melchizedek was actually, I guess you could say, a biological anomaly. He, did, he was eternal. He did not, he, he was maybe even a pre-incarnate Christ, or he was... Um, he actually did not have end of days. Um, is that what's happening here? I believe, and I think that the text will play this out, is that it's not stating that Melchizedek was an, was an eternal being, but rather when he is mentioned in Scripture, remember, remember this is one passage in Genesis 14, nothing is said about his genealogy or his lineage. And nothing is said about his death. He just appears as a living priest. He disappears and that's all. And in this way, it says he resembles the Son of God. Right? He's saying, he's, he's pointing to something about the story of Melchizedek. And it says there's something about the story that points toward or resembles the Son of God. And I think he's saying this, that he's saying that Melchizedek is pointing to Christ and that the basis for his priesthood is not dependent on a long succession of priests who come and go. So a Hebrew reader who reads Genesis 14 and reads about this high priest Melchizedek, they might be looking for what are the credentials? What qualifies him to be a high priest? 
And what they're used to is, well, what's his lineage? Is he from the tribe of Levi? What, what, what are his descendants? Was the high priest before him? And none of that is given, right? There's, that, that is not the foundation. That's not the basis for the Melchizedekian priesthood. And so in that same way, the foundation of Christ's high priest is not based on his lineage. Instead, it's based on the fact that Christ is eternal. I believe that's what that passage is pointing toward. And so, Jesus is after the, El the order of Melchizedek in a number of ways. First thing is really interesting. Melchizedek is described as two things. As a king and a priest. A priest king. And that is very, very peculiar, especially for Jewish readers. Because it's impossible for a Jew to be both in the royal line and the priestly line, right? What's the royal line in Israel? Judah, David, right? The line of Judah. And the priestly line is the line of Levi. So the royal line comes from one tribe. The priestly line comes from another. So how in the world can Jesus be our priest and king? Well, he is in the tribe of Judah. He's descended of David. And he is a high priest of a better, a different priesthood, a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Now again, if you're a Hebrew reader, you might hear that and be like, hmm, I'm not quite sure about this Melchizedek priesthood thing. You're kind of pulling this out of one proof text, right? Can you show me, can you prove to me that Melchizedek is greater and better than the Levitical priesthood? And can you show me that the Levitical priesthood did not replace the Melchizedekian priesthood? Because that can be an argument as well. Sure, Melchizedek was a great guy. He was, he, he blessed Abram, but when the Levitical priesthood was established by the law, then that took superiority, right? That's a fair argument. And so if you're a Jew, you're reading this and you're thinking, okay, you've got to prove that to me. You've got to show me that Melchizedek and his priesthood is far superior than the Levitical priesthood. And you have to prove to me that Levitical priesthood did not replace this Melchizedekian priesthood. So that is uh, the task to which the author of Hebrews sets out. Any questions so far? I've been rambling. Questions or comments? All right, heads are swimming. All right, so we'll see if we can get some clarity as we go. So, verses 4 through 10 is going to describe how Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and, by extension, Levi. And we see in verse 4, he's going to make the point. See how great this man was. I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to show you how great this Melchizedek guy was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave the tenth of his spoils. And so, let's ask the question, who paid the tithe to whom? Who paid the tithe? Abraham did, and he paid it to Melchizedek. And he makes the point, Abraham is the patriarch. He's an important guy. And Abraham is the one who paid the tithe. Verse 5, and those descendants of Levi, that would be the priests, 
who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So let me try to illustrate what he's saying here, okay? So, we have Abraham and Levi comes from Abraham. Who pays, who pays tithes to the tribe of Levi or the priests? The other people, right? So the people pay tithes to Levi, okay? Levi is a descendant of Abraham. Who did Abraham pay tithes to? All right. Melchizedek. I'm going to abbreviate his name. His name is Milk. All right. Um, so, according to this, who is greater? Is it Melchizedek or is it Levi? It's Melchizedek. Why? Because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi, Levi receives tithes from the people, but Melchizedek is at the top. Does that make sense? Now, just to make it all clear, verse 7, it is beyond dispute, everyone knows this, he's saying, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Okay, so not only does the inferior pay tithes to the superior, but the superior blesses the inferior. So, if Abraham was superior to Melchizedek, Abraham would be the one doing the blessing. But Melchizedek is the one doing the blessing, which means Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, which by extension means he is superior to Levi because Levi descended from Abraham. All right? And to kind of just, he's having fun with this, verse 9, he says, one might even say that even Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, was Levi literally inside of Abraham? No, okay. Um, he's saying that he was yet to be descended from Abraham. And so he's saying one could even entertain the idea that you could say, one might say that Levi was also paying tithes to this Melchizedek because he was a descendant of Abraham. And so all of that to say, this is why he's saying all of this. Melchizedek and his priesthood is superior to Levi. Any questions? <laughs> All right. Is that clear? Any questions? Like, I'm not getting this yet? Abraham recognized. Yeah. So Abraham acknowledged, this is a great high priest because I'm the one paying tithes to him, and Melchizedek is blessing me. And the only question is, does he come out and look, who is this guy? Right, yeah, who is this guy? We don't care. <laughs> and the, yeah, the problem is we don't know, so there's, there's the answer to that question. Um, so let's go on to the second question. 
a Hebrew might say, well, um, Melchizedek was a great guy and superior in Abraham's day, but could that simply be due to the fact that the Levitical priesthood had not been established yet, right? Maybe the Levitical priesthood supersedes or overrides this priesthood. And now verse 11 is going to answer that. And here he's going to go back to Psalm 110, verse 4. So verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This is what he is asking here. Why Psalm 110? Verse 4. That's what he's saying. If perfection was possible through the tribe of Levi, that priesthood, then why in the world, when we read a Messianic psalm, Psalm 110, do we read that there needs to be another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than named after the order of Aaron? So he's saying, and remember, Psalm 110 is written after the Levitical priesthood has been established fully. Right? The Levitical priesthood is, is in place. And in that context, in Psalm 110, he says, there will come a priest forever after the order of Aaron? No, Melchizedek. And so what is this telling us? It's telling us that the Levitical priesthood did not supersede or undo the priesthood of Melchizedek. If perfection were possible through the Levitical priesthood and by extension through the law, why in the world is there a reference to a second priesthood? And so he's trying to walk his readers through the fact. I know that you guys really value the Levitical priesthood and it's really important, it's really valuable. But the scripture itself points to the fact that Melchizedek and his priesthood was superior in Abraham's day and it remained superior even while the Levitical priesthood was in place. And he's all simply just trying to make the case, Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. It's over, it's, it's, it's far better. And he also points toward the fact that the Levitical priesthood is inferior. If perfection had been possible through the Levitical priesthood, why is there a second? And if there's any change in the priesthood, then there's a change in the law, verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. Why is he making this point? Well, because the Levitical priesthood was established by the Mosaic law, and he ties the insufficiency of the priesthood to the insufficiency of the law. They're intertwined. So just as the priesthood was never meant to bring perfection, neither was the law. They, are both, they both were a temporary provision designed to be fulfilled by a future Messiah. So here what the, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do, he's established, hopefully in their minds, the order of Melchizedek is superior. But let me tell you why the Levitical priesthood was never meant to be superior. It was never designed to be because perfection was never attainable through the Levitical priesthood, through the law. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And so he's saying that the priesthood of Levi was never designed to bring total perfection. Verses 13 and 14 describe how Jesus came as a priest, not under the law, because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And the law of Moses, verse 14, says nothing about priests from the tribe of Judah. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. So the one of whom these things are spoken is Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this makes the point I said earlier. Nowhere in the, in the, did Judah give any, was given any right to the priesthood. He's saying that Jesus came from Judah. We all know this. And so if that's the case, there must be another priesthood to which Jesus is connected. It's the superior Melchizedekian priesthood. This priest king, this king of righteousness, this king of peace, who appears on the basis of an indestructible life, disappears, and is referenced in Psalm 110 as part of the fulfillment of a future Messiah. And so now he's going to start to bring in Jesus and how Jesus is far superior. And, and the point being, because Jesus is part of the Melchizedekian priesthood, he can help you in ways that the Levitical priesthood could never help you and were never intended to help you with. Questions so far? I just want to make sure that you are at least where we are in the text. Any questions clarifying any cobwebs that we can dust off? <laughs> All right. Isn't this the best? <laughs> All right, verse 15. This becomes even more evident, he says, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. This is what we're going to see in verses 15 through 22. He's going to draw out two truths from Psalm 110. 110 verse 4 is going to be his, his key text, and he's going to draw out two truths from this. Verses 15 through 19, he's going to, try, he's going to draw out the eternal nature of Christ's priesthood. And in the, in, in the uh, verses 20 through 22, he's going to talk about the basis of Christ's priesthood being on, an, uh, on a better promise. So he's going to reference back to Psalm 110 here. Verses 15 through 19, he says this, he, he's making this point. Because Jesus' priesthood is eternal, we have a better hope. We see that down here in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So, let's see how he makes this point. Another priest has arisen in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a high priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, and here he quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is he highlighting here? He's highlighting the forever part. He is, his, the basis of his priesthood is not on bodily descent, but on an indestructible life. And so the contrast between the Levitical priesthood is found here, bodily descent and indestructible life. 
And if this priesthood is forever, then the Levitical priesthood is abrogated. That's the point that he's trying to make. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So here's his point in these verses. Because Christ's priesthood is eternal and forever, after the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood supersedes and does away with the Levitical priesthood, which the Hebrew readers are so accustomed to. And if that, he's, that Levitical priesthood is abrogated, then so is the law. A former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness. And here's a question. He just called the law weak and useless. Are we allowed to do that? What does he mean here? When he says the, the law is weak and useless. Yes? Compared to Christ, it is. Compared to Christ. All right. But isn't the law of God holy, right, and good, as we learn in Romans? It can't save you, right? So it's weak and useless pertaining to, certain, uh, to something. What is it weak and useless regarding? Salvation. We see that in the next verse. For the law made nothing perfect. So it's not saying it in a negative sense that the law is weak and useless. It's, it's no good. It's saying it was never designed. It was never meant to make you perfect. That is not the purpose of the law. The, the former commandment of the law, along with the Levitical priesthood, was designed to be set aside when Jesus came. It was temporary. And so to, to, to place your hope in your faith in something temporary is kind of like what we read in Colossians 3. It's like a shadow rather than substance. So he's not bashing the law of Moses here. He's pointing out the fact that it was never, along with the Levitical priesthood, designed to be the final solution in its ability to make us perfect. It is both weak and useless. And that's why we need a new priesthood. And that's why we read in verse 19. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So how does Christ's priesthood offer us a better hope? In what sense is it a better hope? It's eternal. That's the point he's making here, right? Up here, verse, the, the, the reference to Psalm 110, a better hope, it's eternal. And because of that, through this better hope, we can draw near to God. So, how does this priesthood give us a better hope? We can draw near to him. And while God's people were able to enjoy the peace and access to God in the Old Testament as well as in the New, think of, think of the Psalms, right? This was not because of the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices. He's making the point the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices were not designed to draw people toward God. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. What were the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices designed to do? point out sin, in fact, keep us separated from God. To create distance between the holy and the unclean. That's what the Levitical system and the sacrifices and the rituals were designed to do, to, to, to keep sin away from holy presence of God. 
And so the reason why Christ's priesthood is better is it offers us a better hope through which we actually draw near to God and this new and eternal priesthood because he is a priest forever, not on the basis of genealogy, but on the basis of an eternal life and through him we can draw near. So again, through the, through the mindset, through, through the, the context of the original readers, they're looking at the Levitical priesthood as the way, perhaps, that they have access to God. And he's pointing out the fact, no, if you're placing your hope in that, you're actually placing your hope in a shadow that Christ fulfills. And through him, we have a better hope that allows us to draw near to God. Verse 22, 20 through 22, he makes a second point from Psalm 110. And this time, he highlights the oath of God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is, this is from the first part of Psalm 110. But verse 20 says, It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So he's creating a contrast. Levitical priests were not made priests by a promise. Well, how are the Levitical priests made priests? It was simply dictated by the law. The law established it. They became priests. But verse 21 says that this one, Jesus, was made a priest by an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn. So the Lord has sworn. Now, this should be familiar to us from back in chapter 6, right? When God made a promise to Abraham, what did he do? He sealed it with an oath. I swear by myself. He didn't have to do that. His word is enough. But because he wanted to communicate the heirs of, to the heirs of promise the unchanging character of his purpose, he, he sealed it with an oath, and it's impossible for God to lie. It's the same idea here. The Lord has stated something, and he has added to it with an oath, and he will not change his mind. In other words, we could say this, that the Levitical priests was based on the law, the Melchizedekian priesthood based on promise. I know, Melchizedekian is kind of fun to say. <laughs> it's the technical, I tell you, that's what you should, that, like in, in, in commentaries, theological textbooks and stuff, that's what they say, because seminary, seminary professors like making fancy words. Melchizedekian, all right? Um, so the Lord has sworn, meaning that his priesthood, Christ's priesthood, is based off of the promise. And because his priesthood is based off the promise of God and not the law of God, what is the result? Hint, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Better than what covenant? Right? Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, old covenant, right? The old covenant of the law was put in place, again, as our guardian. But when Christ came in a priesthood established by promise, not the law, he is a guarantor of a better covenant. All right? So, this is a hint. And the better covenant is hinting at a discussion that will be fleshed out later in greater detail, so we won't spend too much time on that here. So, if Jesus is a high priest, if he's going to be a great high priest... I'm going to see if I can wrap up this whole thing, okay? If Jesus is a high priest, he can't be after the Levitical priesthood. That would be bad. Why would it be bad? Be 
because it's temporary. That's right. The Levitical priesthood was, was the one who, who kind of governed the law, and the law was never designed to make someone perfect. So it oversees an imperfect law, and it's connected to an inferior covenant, one that was never designed to save, one that was never designed to bring us near to God. It was our guardian. It was there until the time of fulfillment comes. And so if Christ is our great high priest, and if you're a Jewish reader, you're thinking high priest, tribe of Levi, sacrifices, temple, all of these things. He's saying, no, you don't want that to be true because it would relegate him to a lower and insufficient role. There has to be a different pattern. There has to be a different priesthood that reflects the ministry and the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that is why in Psalm 110, it says that this future Messiah will be after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi, not the order of Aaron. Because to be in that line of priests would make him inferior. That's why he's been pointing to this Melchizedekian priesthood to get his readers out of this Levitical priesthood mindset as the be-all, end-all. Verses 23 through 25, he's going to focus on the superiority of Christ compared to the Levitical priesthood. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number. Why were they many in number? Because they, they kept dying. Yeah. So they, 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 they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So why are there so many priests? Why have there been so many priests? Because they're mortal. The role had to be passed down to others due to the death of priests. But because Jesus lives forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. So this speaks to the finality of his role as our high priest. There will never be another. He will never pass his role on to someone else. Later in verse 25, he highlights his role of interceding. Verse 25 he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he is eternal, he's always living to intercede for those who draw near to God through him. Because we learned that priests had a role. We saw in chapter 5 of mediating for the people, interceding for the people, sympathizing with their weakness. We saw that in chapter 5. Can you imagine the frustration of being in that context where there's a succession of priests, priest after priest, right? And you've just gotten to get to know one priest, and, and maybe you trust him, and you've confided in him, and you sympathize with him, but then he passes on. And he turns over his job to someone less qualified, less sympathetic, less capable, right? The constant turnover. That frustration, right? And he's saying Jesus is not that type of priest because he always lives he will never give his job of interceding on your behalf to someone else. He always lives to make intercession for you. You can be confident that your relationship with Jesus will never change. He'll never move on from you. He will never delegate his role of intercession to someone else. This is like an application of the fact that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because that's true, he always lives to intercede for you. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him. You see uttermost, this, this has the idea of for all time or completely. To the uttermost. He always lives because he's eternal. He always lives to offer salvation to those who are lost. And he always lives to, to be present and accessible to his children for the rest of their days. To those who draw near to him, he will keep them. He will intercede for them until the end. Here's the great truth. You never have to worry about your high priest passing away before you do. He is always there. He is always interceding. And as you grow to trust him more and more and more, you never have to worry about that role being passed on to somebody else. He will always be your intercessor. And when we consider intercessor, this word right here, interceding, make sure you're viewing it in the right way. Sometimes we view interceding as, as one theologian writes, standing ever before the Father with outstretched arms, with strong crying and tears, pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God. He's saying that's not the type of intercession that Christ is doing. He is interceding as a throned priest king, asking what he will from the Father who always hears and grants his request. Because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king. And so Christ is superior because he is eternal. He is not prevented by death to continue in office. We have mentioned that the priesthood of Christ is the current role that he is, fun that he is functioning in right now in heaven for you. He is interceding for you. He is, he is pleading on your behalf. He is there for you, sympathizing with you. Verse 25, he continues, verse 26. We see that not only is he superior because of um, his eternality, but he's superior because of his perfection. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, we spend a lot of time discussing the sympathy, the suffering, and the humanity of Jesus. But it's far more important that our high priest not only sympathizes with our temptation and learns obedience through suffering, but that he emerges from it unscathed, innocent, and unstained, and exalted above the heavens. We need a perfect and sinless high priest. So if you think that Je Jesus' sinlessness diminishes his sympathy for humanity, then you're not focusing on the right thing. Because if you want to be saved from your sins, you need a perfect Savior. It was fitting, indeed fitting, that we have a high priest that is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Why is that so necessary? Verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. We read in Leviticus 16, when the Levitical priesthood was established, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. But Jesus' sacrifice was so sufficient and complete, complete that he only needed to be offered once. 
And neither did Jesus have to die twice, once for his own sins and once for the sins of the people. Every ounce of blood that Jesus spilled was for you. He did not have to reserve a bit of it for himself because he did not have a bit of sin. Mark 14, 24 says, Jesus said to his disciples, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Not for himself, for you. Jesus made one final payment for sins. He did this once when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, why is Melchizedek important? All right. We just went through a whole chapter quite rapidly. Why is Melchizedek important? Because Jesus must be our great high priest, but he cannot be attached to a priesthood that is bound by the law, stipulated by a lesser covenant and limited by both sin and death. That's the Levitical priesthood. Bound by law, stipulated by a lesser covenant, limited by the death of the priests and the sin of the priests. That's the Levitical priesthood. It served its purpose, but it was incomplete. The presence of Melchizedek sets a pattern and points to a fulfillment of an eternal and superior priesthood fulfilled by Jesus Christ, the perfect priest king who offered a sufficient sacrifice, being the guarantor of a better covenant and lives as the eternal intercessor for all who draw near to him. So this is a one-of-a-kind priesthood. It's the priesthood of Melchizedek. Christ is our high priest, but not like the priests that they were used to. And we should be thankful for that. Because of that, we have an eternal intercessor. We have a perfect, sinless high priest who didn't have to sacrifice for himself. He sacrificed everything for us. And now he lives forever to intercede for us. Sound good? All right. Questions or comments? Yes, sir. I can't help thinking that the Apostle Paul must have been the one that wrote this and learned it from Christ when he spent the time on the backside of the desert. Maybe. If Paul wrote it. But it's, it's true. I mean, to is think that it is. It is. And, uh, and to think that, because um, Paul is, one of the reasons why people point to Paul is because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And he knew the law and lived the law. And, uh, and yet when Christ came and revealed himself to him, it changed everything. And he saw what he had been hoping in was inferior. Justin. It reminds me, even my mind in context of this, this was scandalous enough. Right. I mean, this was like, whoa, I'm a Jewish person. This was huge for them to think about that. Yeah. For us, we kind of don't do most of that. It's really a good reminder to keep the context of who is going to be And that's why. Yeah. And that's why, in his argument, he points back to the Old Testament, right? He says, look, I'm just saying what Psalm 110 points toward a different priesthood. And they're doing the same thing we were doing. Right. They're doing this one, they're looking back there. Right. Yeah. 
So, so he's not, he's not in, in one way, he's giving earth-shattering, scandalous news. But in reality, when you look at the text, you're like, nope, no, this is always the plan. This is always the intention. You're just hoping in the shadow instead of pointing toward the real deal. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yes. Well, it's, I mean, and if you didn't catch it, it's kind of thick to walk through, right? <coughs> That's why he said, you know what, this is, this is deeper stuff. And, and why did he have to go through such complexity and kind of walk through all these arguments and point to these passages and, and step by step saying, okay, this is the Levitical priesthood, this is how Jesus is different. Because he's trying to, if I can use a, a word that's been misused in our day, he's trying to deconstruct something in the minds of his readers. And that takes work. Whenever you're trying to shift the mindset of someone from something so ingrained that you really have to patiently walk through, take them by the hand and say, Here's, look at this scripture. Now look at this scripture. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to make them convinced without a shadow of a doubt that Christ is the, mo is the greatest high priest, better than anything they can hope for in, 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 in their day. Any other thoughts? Yes? I can't see the priests that are hearing this letter being read, being particularly happy about <laughs> what's going on here, because he is turning their entire world and belief system on its head. Well, in a way, perhaps. I would say he's turning their entire belief system on their head if they have been misbelieving what scripture has said about their role and, and what the priests are called to do, right? Yeah, and so, again, we see that in the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees abused the law and turned it into something for themselves. And we see examples of priests doing that exact same thing in the Old Testament. So definitely for a priest that's saying, like, I'm the guy, right? I'm the priest. Then, yeah, he's looking at Christ and saying, you're, you're saying that I'm not the guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of a job now, is what he's saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. That also might have been relieving, though. It could have been. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I mean, I can be too. right. You think of it like from a high priest's point of view, right? Like, I'm the guy. I have to have all the sympathy for everybody else. Oh, there's a greater high priest that died for me, too, right? And there's a permanence there. Yeah. Melchizedek. <laughs> right. Christians who don't have 
have is Jewish rich history. Some of the fundamentals, like tithing, which mm -hmm. is mentioned in there. Uh, this was not a teaching on tithing. The Jewish people knew about tithing. Right. right. This was using that illustration as one of the that you made of the people who agreed to the Levites, to Abraham, and eventually to Melchizedek. Yeah. Oh, by the way, this man, Jesus Christ, Son of God, is, as, some, as you said, some people say is him, or the likeness of him. Right. Or, uh, I guess the position you're taking is they are like each other. Right. The same order. Mm -hmm. uh, proves to them, because they've always thought of Abram, Abraham as the patriarch. Yes. This guy's greater than Abraham. Yeah. And that's proving that Christ is worthy of their praise. Yeah. And yeah, he starts with something that everyone can agree on, right? He says it's beyond dispute yeah. that the that the lesser is blessed by the greater, that the that the lesser tithes to the greater. Can we all agree on that? Okay, now because of that, look at this text and see it proves <coughs> that Abraham is not the greatest, that the Levitical priest is not the greatest. And this is also a beautiful example of how scripture answers scripture. Right. For questions. Yeah. When you read the story of Abraham tithing to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, you're scratching your head. Why did he give him 10%? Because uh -huh. it doesn't say. Right. It says he tithed to him. On to the next subject. <laughs> and this teaches you that tithe signified that Abraham knew Melchizedek was, was great. Yeah, absolutely. And we just kind of breathe, we breeze by that a lot, right? Without really giving it a second thought. Um, just as a teaser, right? Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. <laughs> now the point of what we're saying is this. This is inductive reasoning. He has saved his point for the end. This is why we're saying, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And he'll go on to continue about the superiority of Christ over the, over the covenant. Verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he, has, he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the whole point in everything he's saying is simply this. We have this high priest. He's seated at the right hand of God, the throne of the majesty in heaven. He intercedes for you. He loves you. He saved you. He died for you. You don't have to hope in something lesser than that. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for a complicated truth, a difficult truth, but hopefully one that points us to your greatness, your superiority. Lord, that to, to put our hope in anything other than Christ is to settle for something lesser. Lord, I thank you so much that we do not have to depend on human priests, on human law, for hope, for salvation. We can depend on you who is eternal, who is sinless, and who died a sacrificial death on our behalf so that we could have eternal life. We thank you for that incredible truth that we have such a great high priest. Help us, Lord, to find comfort, confidence, and hope in that truth. That even in all the technicalities and the cross-references and the, 
and, and, and the arguments that we would walk away and say, here's the reason for it. Because we have Jesus, this great high priest who is sitting in heaven by your side, interceding on our behalf. We thank you for that incredible reality that we can experience even today.